Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Cell and gene therapies, new therapies for blood uh, and immune uh, diseases. Uh, and we have uh, an incredible lineup of speakers. Um, just a few words uh, to say that, uh, of course, uh, the work of CIRM has been uh, quite um, uh, accelerating uh, for this area of science. And um, I think there is no area where uh, uh, stem cells and stem cell therapeutics uh, has been more important and more impactful thus far than in dealing with uh, immune diseases and blood disorders. And in fact, you know, stem cells were first described as those cells that give rise to our all-important blood cells. And so uh, this is an area where the field has learned a lot, um, and those learnings have gone on now to uh, inform other fields like uh, neuroscience and, and cancer therapy. So uh, it's, it's really been a, a robust area of research. So uh, this afternoon, we're going to start with a, a presentation uh, uh, from a patient uh, and um, following uh, that, I, I'm sorry, I don't have her name, um, but um, uh, following that, um, we will uh, hear from Jennifer Puck, uh, one of the leaders in, in uh, uh, cell and gene therapies. Jennifer is a physician at uh, Professor of Pediatrics um, at, the United, at UCSF. She directs the UCSF Jeffrey Modell Diagnostic Center for Primary Immunodeficiencies. And she's going to talk about her work using gene therapy for Artemis, severe combined immunodeficiency. And that will be followed by a presentation by Don Cohn, uh, another physician scientist who is at UCLA in the Broad uh, Broad Stem Cell Research Center. And he's distinguished professor there in microbiology, immunology, molecular genetics, pediatrics, molecular and medical pharmacology at UCLA. And Don is going to speak to us about hematopoietic stem cell gene therapy for primary immunodeficiencies. Uh, and then uh, we'll wrap up uh, with a presentation by Mark Walters, another physician scientist who is director of the blood and marrow transplantation program at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals. And Mark will talk to us about uh, the exciting uh, work on underway using gene correction uh, for sickle cell disease. So thank you very much and uh, hope you enjoy the session. Our next guest is a woman who's amazing on many levels. She's the mother of a child who could have died in infancy, but thanks to stem cell research, the child is now a thriving eight-year-old. Alicia has also become a great uh, supporter of stem cell research and a powerful patient advocate. Um, Alicia Vaccaro, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, how are you? Oh, great, thank you. Um, so let's start with uh, the reason why you got into all of this, uh, Evie. Um, well, there was no reason I got into it. I was thrown into it. Uh, being, you know, a new mother of twins and having your daughter diagnosed with um, basically, I guess, a terminal illness that anything could potentially kill her. I was put into this situation. And because of the situation, I, I learned about stem cells. So what, what would Evie diagnosed with and, and what, what happened after that? 
Uh, Evangelina was born in 2012 and she was diagnosed with SCID, which is a severe combined immune deficiency, which basically means she had no immune system whatsoever and any potential virus, bacteria, fungus could kill her. And at the time, what, what kind of options were you given in terms of treatments? At the time, you know, as a, a new mother and as any parent, um, your option was that you thought, well, my child's going to die. Um, but over time and being in the hospital, we realized that there was a potential to maybe have a bone marrow transplant uh, if you have a matching sibling. That's usually the most successful. And again, that's a treatment. Uh, her sister was not a match for her. And we did then find out that Dr. Cohn at UCLA had a potential gene therapy trial that um, maybe our daughter could uh, could be a, a patient in. What did, you, what did you understand about this? I mean, was this something you'd heard about before or was it just completely new? Well, everyone knows that in a trial you're experimenting. I mean, that's just what it is right now. I mean, people are in an experiment for a COVID vaccine. You don't know what's going to happen realistically in that scenario. However, with this trial, we were provided an ample amount of information because Evangelina was not the first to be in this trial. Many parents had laid a pathway for our decision with our own child. And we felt like that was a better option than going with a partial match for a bone marrow transplant and her dying of graft versus host disease. Even so, for you and Kristen, your husband, it must have been a tremendously difficult decision to make. I mean, it, as you say, it's an experiment. Well, and that's, I don't think any treatment is easy for a parent. You know, um, you don't know if you're going to make the right one. You're hoping you do. You do as much research as you can with the minds that you're provided and the knowledge you have, not as, you know, we were both not in the medical field. Um, but speaking to Dr. Cohn, who led the trial, he was so kind and explained everything in a level that we could understand in a human level. And we felt that that was the better option. And if the trial didn't work, worst case scenario, we knew that the bone marrow transplant is something we could have always fallen back on. So in Evie's case, they took some of her own blood stem cells, right? And genetically corrected the, the flaw, uh, returned them to her, and, and that built a new blood supply and, and repaired her immune system. How quickly after that procedure did you begin to see changes? Did you begin to see um, her immune system really reconstitute itself? So realistically, it was slow um, because it's, you know, blood draw by blood draw. She was in the hospital for six weeks. They did chemo. It just, you know, wipes out a little system out. But um, it was probably about three to four weeks in. Um, and it was around Christmas that Dr. Cohen came in and says, it looks like it's working. And those cells were duplicating in her body. So it was soon, but it was a gradual increase to where she could get to being outside and then potentially playing with other children and living a normal life. How's she doing today? Oh, she's wild. She, um, she's into everything. She uh, is around her peers. Um, she's living a normal life. She's at the beach. She's on her skateboard. She's, you know, riding horses. She's 
pulling her sister's hair. <laughs> She's just a normal, beautiful, healthy child. So before this, you, did you have any ideas about what stem cell research was and, and how did this change your perception of it? I didn't understand stem cells at all, at all. Um, sitting here today, I have no idea um, how I voted on the proposition that uh, funded CERN. <clears throat> I was born and raised a Catholic girl, and I always had the perception of the embryos and babies, and I was uneducated. And now I know that um, it's just this, these stem cells are this, this, this wonderful gift that God's given us, and we're using them to help treat these people and not maintain people. So since then, you've become not just a parent of a child who's benefited from it, you've become a real supporter of stem cell research and a great patient advocate. How do you, important do you think it is to have that kind of voice, the voice of, of a patient advocate, of someone who's gone through this, um, to help talk to others about this work? Well, because people don't realize it could be them. I didn't think it was going to be me. And I would have never, in, in my wildest dreams, have said that, you know, that, that Hallmark story or that, you know, article you read in the newspaper or what you saw in the news was going to be me. We never know and we never see it as it's going to be, it, it's us. But it, it was me. It was my daughter. It was my family. It was my sister, my brothers, my cousins. We all went through it. Um, but I also can't look at my child daily and say, look at the gift I've received and not try to push that for others. That's not me. And I don't think that when you're given such an amazing gift that you just hold it back. You have to share it, you have to push it, and you got to keep building on it. And you do that. You're on one of our clinical advisory panels at CAP, and you're helping to guide some of this research along. How important is that role for you? And do you feel you really are making a difference? Absolutely. I absolutely feel like I'm making a difference because researchers and scientists, they know their reason why but they have to be reminded of who, who they're treating, who they're potentially curing, who they're affecting with their daily work. They know the why, why you're sick. We want to fix you, but who are they? What are they going through? They need to remember that because sometimes I think you get into, I guess the mundane portion of day by day science, and then you have your setbacks and then you go forward and you need that drive to be like, wow, I gave these people a life. I gave these people a family. I kept their unit together. Um, we know that many clinical trials now um, do a good job of kind of reaching out to different communities, but often miss out and are ignored or overlook underserved communities. How important is it for, for the roles of patients and patient advocates to be able to kind of remind uh, the researchers that there are many, many different groups out there and we need to do as good a job of reaching out to those communities as we possibly can. Well, in our case, I didn't know anything about gene therapy. It wasn't until, you know, Dr. Buckbinder at Chalk said, hey, they're doing this at UCLA. You might want to look into it. Do you want me to have them reach out? That's because I was in that situation. Now, are there ways that maybe these things should be more broadly advertised so that people think, hey, there is another option besides, 
you know, what maybe your physician is limited in, in, in knowledge, because not every physician is going to be privy to all these trials and all these other studies. So I think with social media, things can be kind of, I guess, advertised in that sense. Um, another way that, for example, underprivileged individuals may get it sooner or at least get it directly to them is we have wonderful school districts that, you know, they promote meals, they promote extra help and education, they can be promoting options with health um, and trial information, and maybe that is a way of reaching them as well. There are just so many more platforms today than there were, you know, five, 10 years ago that I think every one of those social media and news networks and even simple thing as a school district can get to people that are underprivileged. So as you know, there are a lot of clinics out there offering therapies that haven't really been proven to be either safe or effective. Um, you've become kind of a spokesperson for this. Do you often get people coming up to you and saying, should I go to one of these clinics? Should I, should I try this? Absolutely. You have people that are, you know, sold on the fact that, oh, I have stem cells put into my knee and my knee feels better. Well, I'm glad it's feeling better, but the stem cells really didn't do anything for your knee. Um, you know, they have somewhere, you know, oh, I'm putting these stem cells on my face and it looks younger or, you know, I great. Um, but to me, I look for institutional backing. Um, when we did the research for Evangelina, uh, it was NIH documents, UCLA documents, UCSF documents, USC documents, uh, research in, in Italy, London. Um, it, it was very broad and worldwide. So in my opinion, do your research. If you don't see, you know, CIRM or UCLA or the NIH promoting these treatments, then they're not really treatments and you're wasting your money. Right. That's the way I see it. I always tell people if stem cells work for the face, would I look like this? Um, clearly not. Alicia, thank you so much for, for joining us and as always for sharing your story. It's always a delight. Hello, everyone. I'm Jennifer Puck from UCSF, and with Mort Callan, we are going to tell you about a gene therapy trial for Artemis deficient severe combined immunodeficiency that we call ART-SKID. SKID is a very severe disease. It used to kill all infants, uh, but now we realize it can be treated with a bone marrow transplant from a healthy person. However, uh, infants who develop infections are much more difficult to treat. And this is data from the Primary Immune Deficiency Treatment Consortium, which is 47 centers around the US and Canada, showing that uh, treatment is very successful if given at a young age, less than 3.5 months before babies have started to get serious infections, but these infections begin and they certainly compromise survival. And this is even uh, modern data in the last decade showing survival decreasing to around 50% if infants have an active infection at the time of their bone marrow transplant. 
Fortunately, now we have newborn screening for SCID in all states as of 2019, and the screening is based on detecting these little circles of DNA called TRETs that are produced from the recombination of the T-cell receptor that has to cut and paste different pieces together in order to generate the T-cell diversity that helps us fight infections. And we'll talk about this some more in a few minutes, but this byproduct of T-cell receptor rearrangement produces a very handy analyte for newborn screening. And this graph just shows that newborn screening has increased as a, a diagnostic method of SCID in the past several years. You can see the years and percent of cases uh, screened. Whereas the percentage of infants diagnosed by having infections has fortunately gone down. Another determinant of survival for SCID is the genotype. There are many different genes that interrupt T-cell development. And what you see on this graph, again, data from the Primary Immune Deficiency Treatment Consortium, is that the survival is the worst for a gene called DCLRE1C. And we don't like saying that uh, string of letters over and over. So it's called the Artemis gene. This was the name given to it by the first uh, group that cloned it. And uh, mutations in the Artemis gene produce skid that has the worst survival of any of the skid genotypes. Uh, again, even modern data up to 2018. So what is different about Artemis deficient skid? This is an ultra rare disorder, only about three to 5% of all skid and skid itself occurs in only one in 60,000 births. The gene encodes a DNA repair enzyme. And this repair enzyme is necessary in order to accomplish the T-cell and B-cell receptor rearrangements that I just alluded to that are required in order to make T-cells and B-cells mature. So this is called a T-minus, B-minus form of SCID. And because DNA breaks can't be fixed, these individuals also have increased sensitivity to radiation. There is a founder mutation uh, in Navajo and Apache Native Americans so that they have a much more frequent incidence of skid, one in 2,000 births due to a stop uh, codon mutation in the Artemis gene. Why does art skid have the poorest survival? Well, even with a matched sibling donor, which is the ideal donor for a transplant, B-cell Reconstitution is rare in Artemis deficiency, and even T-cell reconstitution often incomplete. When there isn't a matched sibling, and there isn't in the majority of cases, alternate donor transplants have a high rate of rejection, poor immune reconstitution, and a very high incidence of graft-versus-host disease, which we think may be mediated by those NK cells, which are present uh, even though T-cells and B-cells are absent. Uh, individuals with ART-SCID are very sensitive to high-dose chemotherapy that's used 
for pre-transplant conditioning. And even the survivors have short stature, poor tooth development, endocrinopathies, and increased mortality. So all these things together made us decide that Artemis uh, would be a good candidate for autologous gene therapy. That is putting a correct copy of the gene into bone marrow stem cells. We've worked a lot with the Navajo and Apache uh, tribes and UCSF has a long history of treating Navajo and Apache children with art skid. The Navajos live in very challenging circumstances, many of them far out in the country. You've heard about their awful uh, experience with COVID-19 in the recent months. And some of our patients come from houses with dirt floors and no indoor plumbing. Fortunately, we have a a trusted and experienced local physician, Dr. Diana Hu in Tuba City, who helps us uh, follow these patients. And we have sent a team to the reservation annually to hold skid clinics to follow our patients who've been treated there. But this was the first year uh, we couldn't go in person due to the pandemic. We had to have a Zoom skid clinic. Uh, Our Navajos bring their traditions with them when they come to UCSF for transplants. And many of them arrive with a cradle board like this one in the picture. It just has to be uh, fully disinfected and all the bedding has to be sterilized before they can bring it into the transplant room. And despite all these things, stress levels are high, patients are far from home, and a transplant of any kind takes at least three to four months, uh, and gene therapy is unfortunately uh, no quicker. So this is a picture of our gene therapy vector, which I'm not going to go into in detail, but one important feature is that it uses the endogenous Artemis promoter to drive expression of the Artemis cDNA. And most vectors for other gene therapy have used some other type of vector, but we believe that this will give the right amount of Artemis protein in the right cells at the right time. To date, we've enrolled 10 patients, and I'm not going to have time to talk about the ones in light blue who are older individuals who've already had treatment as infants, but the treatment was not successful. The rest of the uh, time, I'm going to focus on the uh, ones shown in darker blue here. These are newly diagnosed infants. And although several of our patients are Navajo, uh, we've been surprised to find every ethnicity has Artemis skid to one degree or another, uh, as you can see here. Our treatment protocol involves a very low dose of busulfan. This is a dangerous chemotherapy agent, but we need to use it to make space in the bone marrow for the corrected cells when we reinfuse them. And we've taken pains to do targeted pharmacokinetics for each infant to adjust their dose based on their own metabolism. And that's important You can see here that the dose required 
varies by a factor of two. So if we'd just done a weight-based dosing, some patients would receive too much and some uh, too little. So in terms of the follow-up, uh, I'm going to show you just the data from infants. And right now we have over 13 months mean follow-up. So first, here is the vector copy number that we're observing in the T cells that develop and the B cells that develop in these infants. So each infant is shown here in a different color. We also see the vector coming up in natural killer cells and in myeloid cells. So that means we're getting multi-lineage engraftment, uh, which is a good indication that we have true stem cells that would be needed for durable, successful treatment. And these are the numbers of T cells, B cells, uh, and T cell subsets that we've seen develop. So these infants have almost all started with undetectable cells, because this is a T minus, B minus skin. And the cells that were present in one patient were actually maternal cells. You can see that over time, uh, after about three months, the numbers of gene-corrected functional T cells has shot up, and all the patients shown here have uh, developed B cells once they get out past three months. We are also looking carefully at the insertion site profile because we want to avoid having clonal proliferation as occurred in the original SCID gene therapy trials for X-linked SCID with gamma retrovirus vectors in France. In these cases, we're gratified to see almost all of the clones that we look at, we see only one time, whereas the insertion sites that are seen multiple times account for a very modest percent of the total cells. And the other thing that we're looking at is the diversity of the T-cell receptors that these patients are generating. So as I already said, the recombination of these T-cell receptor genes is what gives us the diversity of our T-cell population. And we need this in order to be able to recognize all of the things in the environment that we need to respond to. And these are called antigens. So T-cells have on their surface these receptors, and this is the variable region of the T-cell receptor right here. And what we do is we actually sequence the RNA that is encoding that portion of T-cell receptors. So you can see in uh, data from a healthy infant cord blood or a healthy adult, there is a great deal of diversity. And this diagram depicts uh, each unique sequence as a dot. And the size of the dot is proportional to the number of times that sequence occurred. So there's a huge variety, very little predominance of one clone or the other in either cord blood or adult blood. We measure this with something called the Shannon index, which is around 9.6 or 9.8. And here is patient 007, who we treated with gene therapy. He started off with essentially no T cells and extremely low diversity. But by three months, you can see T cells starting to develop and a good amount of diversity 
beginning to be detected. And by six months, he's already got a Shannon index of nearly as much as the uh, adult and cord blood donors. So in conclusion, to date, we've treated 10 patients with our autologous corrected CD34 stem cell preparation, and we have had no serious adverse events, no rejection, no graft-versus-host disease, and um, the low-dose busulfan targeting appears to be working well. We have not had toxicity from this, and our preliminary studies indicate significant diversity of insertion sites with no dominant clones and also diversity of the T-cell repertoire that's developing. We have had two patients who developed autoimmune hemolytic anemia, uh, a temporary complication likely associated with early B-cell reconstitution. And we are following these patients. Uh, we've treated them successfully and um, we're looking into why this happens. We clearly need to enroll more patients and follow them longer to know if this is going to be a fully successful treatment, but we're very optimistic at this point. And I'd like to end just by thanking all of the team at UCSF and our NIH collaborator, Harry Malik, Scott McIver, who helped us make the vector and doctors who referred uh, patients to us as well as the patients and their families. Thank you very much. I'm going to talk about hematopoietic stem cell gene therapy for primary immune deficiencies. Uh, my conflict of interest statement, I'm an inventor on the work I'll talk about, uh, patented by the University of California Regents, and this intellectual property was licensed to Orchard Therapeutics, the work on ADA SCID. I'm also on the scientific advisory boards listed there, including Orchard Therapeutics. And some of the preliminary clinical trial results I'll show are from ongoing studies and not final results. So among the different white cells, there are immune deficiencies involving most of them. And I will talk today about work we've done on adenosine deaminase or ADA deficient SCID. This was with a CIRM grant and in collaboration with Orchard Therapeutics. Uh, I won't talk about other than to mention right now that we're also doing trials for neutrophil defects, X-linked chronic granulomatous disease under a CIRM CLIN2, and that was just published in Nature Medicine, and also leukocyte adhesion deficiency under a different CIRM grant to Rocket Pharma. So ADA deficiency is illustrated here, the, the biochemistry. The enzyme ADA deaminates adenosine or deoxyadenosine to make inosine or deoxyadenosine, which can then either be uh, excreted ultimately as uric acid or salvaged. And it turns out that in the absence of ADA enzyme genetic deficiency, it was observed that ADA enzymes were missing in a skid patient that led to the suggestion it could be involved in the disease. And we now know that in the absence of ADA, high levels of the nucleoside that build up are phosphorylated, especially in lymphocytes, to deoxyadenosine triphosphate. And this is what's lymphotoxic, kills off the immune system, and leads to ADA skid. So ADA skid is about 10 to 15% of all human skid. And our estimate is that there's about 10 children a year born with that between the U.S. and Canada. And of the different forms of skid, it's the first one where the human where the biochemical and genetic bases were determined. Um, and we know that ADA-deficient skid patients have profound panlymphopenia, meaning they have low levels of T, B, and NK lymphocytes from these accumulated lymphotoxic adenine metabolites I just showed you. 
And there are several therapeutic options for these patients, including allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant, either from a matched sibling or matched family donor, or from a matched unrelated donor, or from a haploidentical, usually a, a parent donor. Um, and then what I'll talk about today is autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplant with gene therapy. And there's also an enzyme replacement therapy for ADA skid, where bovine ADA is conjugated to polyethylene glycol and can be given as repeated um, injections. Uh, but for the gene therapy that, that I'll talk about, the schema is shown here. So in our study, we used bone marrow as the source of hematopoietic stem cells. They were harvested from the patient in the operating room, taken to the GMP laboratory, where we enriched for the CD34 fraction. We then used a lentiviral vector to add a normal ADA gene. The cells were then formulated and certified. During this time, the patients received some cytoreductive chemotherapy to make space for the stem cells, which are then reinfused intravenously. And then we follow the patients for the different um, endpoints of the study for safety, for the clinical outcomes, measuring the gene frequency, gene expression, and looking at the vector integration sites. So this is our, our, our lifetime total work on ADA skid uh, patients with gene therapy. We treated three patients in the early 90s using their umbilical cord blood that really didn't bring any efficacy. Then we did studies over about a decade using a, a gamma retroviral vector. And then in, in 2013, we opened up our trials using the EFS ADA lentiviral vector that I'll talk about today and that has been licensed to Orchard Therapeutics. So this is a map of the vector, and it shows that it's a relatively simple vector carrying a normal human ADA cDNA that's been coded and optimized to improve translation. It uses the elongation factor, short promoter, has a WPRE to stabilize the message, and that's the transcript it made. This vector was made by colleagues in, in University College London, Adrian Thrasher and Bobby Gaspar, and then we together have studied it. And so there were parallel trials in the U.K., in the U.S. using this vector uh, to treat patients with ADA skid. I'll talk about our studies, the initial trial using fresh cells, then a follow-up study using cryopreserved cells. And there's just a picture of uh, Bobby Gaspar and Adrian Thrasher, our colleagues. And so for the FRESH trial, this is the schema that the patients followed. So following consent and screening studies, they would be admitted like on a Monday. Tuesday morning, they'd go to the operating room for a bone marrow harvest and placement of a PICC line. We'd isolate the stem cells in the laboratory and then do the lentivirus transduction of the gene transfer over a two-day period. Uh, during that time, they'd get a single dose of chemotherapy to make space. And then on Thursday, they'd get the cells reinfused. And then if all went well, one month later, we'd stop their enzyme therapy and then follow their immune reconstitution. And we enrolled and treated 20 patients under this schema between 2013 and 2015. And these are some of the results from the, the study. These are our uh, interim trial results and not fully uh, validated data. But it shows that the patients went from having basically no ADA in their red cells due to their ADA deficiency to, on average, levels of ADA that were above the normal range that were really quite stable and sustained over the two years of follow-up. The uh, bad metabolites that accumulate in their red blood cells were down until we stopped their enzyme therapy. It came back up, but then over time, they came back down, showing the effects of the ADA expression. And then their T cells also dropped after stopping their enzyme that was keeping them alive. But then the T cells came back up into a, a therapeutic range. And the same thing with B cells. 
So based on these positive results, we actually applied to the FDA for orphan drug designation, which was granted in October 2014. We also applied for and received breakthrough therapy designation and then licensed this to Orchard Therapeutics in February 2016. So then going forward from that point, uh, we developed a new clinical trial, um, and this was uh, funded by CIRM and uh, Orchard Therapeutics, and it was designed to assess a cryopreserved cell product. So rather than giving the cells fresh to the patient, we froze them at the end. We enrolled uh, 10 patients in the study, completing all follow-up by September 2019. And the advantages of a cryopreserved product, among others, would that it would allow administration at the local pediatric transplant center rather than within a few blocks of our cell processing laboratory as the FRESH requires. So we call this the frozen trial for the frozen cells. And now the schema was a little more complicated for the patients, so we dissociated collection and transplant. So they'd come in for the bone marrow harvest, and the same process was used to add the gene, but then the cells were frozen. And then we could take the time we needed to certify the cells to make sure they were sterile, had adequate vector copy, all the other uh, endpoints of the certificate of analysis. Then the patients would come back in for a second admission and would receive their chemotherapy now split and adjusted to hit the right total level. Then the cells were thawed and given back and again followed for 30 days, stopping their enzyme and then looking for immune reconstitution. So this just shows the enrollment for the study. So by the time we got it started, we'd already had a backlog of patients referred. So we treated all 10 plant patients within about eight months. Red is the one we did their bone marrow harvest. Green is when they got their transplant. This one patient actually did not, we did not recover adequate cells from one harvest. So we did a second harvest. And ultimately, she went on to not engraft. So she's our only patient that needed to go on to an allogeneic transplant because the gene therapy didn't work. So we transplanted these 10 patients and infected two more um, uh, in an expanded access program. And this is just the people in my group that did all those cell processing. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of cell processing to do in, the, in that course, and they were great. And so we, we presented uh, with Orchard at the 2019 ASH meeting a comparison of the outcomes for multiple parameters, the two most important ones are shown here, between the fresh cells and the total and the, uh, the cryopreserved cells, or them all added together. And you can see that they're basically indistinguishable. And so the frozen cells gave us the same granulocyte vector copy number as a measure of stem cell engraftment and the same lymphocyte recovery kinetics. And so this allowed then the, the two uh, trials to be uh, put together for subsequent um, analyses. And the next analysis that was done by Orchard was to acquire data for a comparator group uh, for the FDA. And so they licensed data from two major centers that treat a lot of SCID patients, Duke University in the U.S. and Great Ormond Street Hospital in, in the U.K. And from them, there were 26 ADA SCID patients who had allogeneic transplant between 2010 and 2016, so a relatively contemporaneous group. Twelve of them received transplants from match-related donors and 14 from non-match-related donors. So the 12 that got match-related donor, uh, 11 used bone marrow, and no condition was given before the transplant, sort of the classical way of transplanting skid patients with a sibling match. One of them, there was a cord blood, and they got only serotherapy. So really no marrow cytoreduction reduction for those patients. The 14 that got the non-match-related donor transplants, nine of them were haplos. They were parental uh, transplants. And then the other five were matched unrelated to mobilized peripheral blood and three cord blood. The nine haplos got no conditioning. The uh, five unrelated donors got a variety of both cytoablative as well as immune suppressive chemotherapies. 
And this group of patients matched the gene therapy cohort for agent diagnosis and treatment and for the CD34 cell doses delivered. And so the first uh, comparison was for overall survival. So the blue line are the gene therapy patients or OTL101, and there were no deaths in this group, 100% survival. Whereas in the transplant groups, there were three deaths. Uh, one of the match-related donor from a sibling had a late death from graft-versus-host disease, and two of the non-related uh, donor transplants also died shortly after transplant. And we also looked at event-free survival, where an event is defined as either death or failure of the immune reconstitution so that an allogeneic transplant or enzyme therapy were needed. And so, as I mentioned before, one of our patients did not engraft and needed a transplant, whereas in the uh, allo transplant patients, there were, there were a total of 10 events um, and, and four um, in, the, in the match or later where they needed either a rescue transplant to go back on enzyme and six in the non-match-related donor group. So the gene therapy was statistically better than uh, transplant for event-free survival. And then finally, we looked at uh, parameters of immune reconstitution. And so red blood cell ADA was higher in the gene therapy group than in the uh, transplant uh, patients. Those who got no conditioning basically developed no stem cell engraftment, so no ADA-containing red cells were produced. Metabolites went down in all the patients, but were actually lowest throughout with the gene therapy group. Uh, CD3-positive T-cells came up to a higher level in the gene therapy group, as did naive T-cells, suggesting ongoing T-cell production. Uh, B-cell counts also came up to a higher level after gene therapy than after the allo transplants. And in fact, because of better B-cell engraftment or, or development, more of the gene therapy patients, uh, 3 out of 29 only, were still on immunoglobulin replacement at two years. And so 89% of the gene therapy patients were off immunoglobulin, whereas only 70% with the sibling transplants. And I just wanted to close by mentioning that, obviously, the work we're doing is presented by CIRM. And over the last 12 years or so of CIRM, we've had many grants, starting with maybe grant number five from CIRM, a training grant, then grants for the specific trials that I've mentioned. And we've also collaborated on many other grants throughout UCLA, UC Irvine, UCSD, UCSF, UC Berkeley, and most importantly, we've had 10 CIRMS Bridges students in our labs over the last 10 years. And so uh, I just want to thank the patients. Uh, some of them are, some of our graduates are shown here at various times after gene therapy. And thank my lab that did all the work that I showed you. Uh, they're working on vectors and editing and clinical work. Our support at UCLA is from multiple um, institutions, including the Broad Stem Cell Center and the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic. The ADA work that I talked about over the, the decades has been funded by multiple sources, most recently CIRM and Orchard Therapeutics. And this is a list of our collaborators. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Mark Walters. I'm at University of California, San Francisco at Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland. And the name of my talk is entitled Gene Correction in Sickle Cell Anemia. This schematic shows uh, the hemoglobin molecule that pairs alpha and beta subunits. Each subunit has a hemoity that carries oxygen to the tissues. So alterations in this hemoglobin molecule that alter its abundance and uh, or function or stability are among the most common genetic disorders worldwide. And together they're associated with anemia, reliance on red blood cell transfusions, chronic illness, and in sickle cell disease, 
early mortality and, and extensive morbidity related to this underlying mutation. The gold standard for curative therapies today, still today, is allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation for sickle cell disease. Um, however, many, if not most patients, are not considered for an allogeneic transplant because they lack a well-matched donor or they have advanced disease that makes a, an allogeneic transplant too risky. And in these data published in the last year or so from registries in Europe and in the United States worldwide, the overall survival after uh, transplantation is shown. And while the mortality is less than 5%, if, if there's an HLA matched sibling as the donor, the, the mortality increases to 10 to 20% if an alternate donor is utilized. So together, these uh, transplant data show that only 18% of families have an H-identical sibling donor and only 19% have a well-matched unrelated donor. And if, even if we were willing to accept a mortality risk of 10 to 20% when an alternate donor is selected, most patients still won't have a suitable donor. In addition, clinicians who take care of sickle cell disease patients don't refer them because of these concerns about graft-versus-host disease and the risk of dying of the transplant itself. So until very recently, transplant was largely restricted to children, but applied very sparingly. So the opportunity and the, the, the gap that this research aims to address is that, first is that, uh, can we modify autologous cells for clinical benefit and thereby expand the availability of a curative therapy because a person with sickle cell disease can act as their own donor? And second, can we ensure equitable access to, to a novel curative therapy that, that applies this um, new approach. So the current genomic modification therapies for sickle cell disease are, are listed in this slide. The best, most widely developed experimental therapy that's nearing FDA approval is gene addition therapy. So uh, stem cells are transduced by a lentiviral vector with an anti-cycling beta globin or a fetal globin for the same anti-cycling activity to elicit a, a curative effect. There are also gene therapy trials that are currently active that edit a molecule termed BC11A that increases fetal hemoglobin and thereby elicits a curative uh, or beneficial effect. And then this talk will focus on gene editing to correct the sickle mutation directly. All of these approaches uh, rely on ex vivo modification of the hematopoietic stem cell in vivo gene editing has still uh, not yet reached the clinic. So what level of gene correction will be clinically important? So this is important because using the current gene editing protocols, it is not possible to modify all the hematopoietic stem cells and thereby correct the sickle mutation. So we know from transplantation using allogeneic donors that as little as 20% of the, of the patient's marrow made up of donor cells is sufficient to cure both sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. And that's because there's this natural enrichment of the, of the donor erythrocytes and precursors uh, that occur in the marrow and in the bloodstream to elicit a curative effect. So these data that I'm not showing today would indicate that Correcting at least one sickle mutation in at least 20% of the engrafted stem cells should be curative. So I'm going to share some details about the sickle allele editing project currently supported by CLIN1 funding, initially supported by a TRAN1 CIRM grant that involves investigators at three sites. So the first is at Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland, at our research institute, David Martin, Wendy Magus, and Dario Buffelli, 
at UCLA is the is the manufacturing site where some of the uh, IND enabling studies, uh, most important IND enabling studies were performed, led by Don Kahn and the project manager Mark DeWitt with Zulema Romero Garcia and Suzanne Said, and then the Innovative Genomics Institute at Berkeley, uh, Jake Korn, um, who was um, more recently replaced by Fyodor Erner with Stacia Wyman and Jonathan Vu. So the schema for the preclinical development is shown in, in this diagram. It begins with collecting plurks for mobilized discard metabolic stem cells from sickle donors. These are electroporated by our gene editing reagents, edited uh, and then uh, injected into uh, a xenograph, xenotransplantation model, whose marrows are harvested 16 to 20 weeks later, sufficient for hematopoietic stem cell engraftment. These marrows are analyzed by uh, next generation sequencing, both on and off target. There's a single off target OT1 that uh, is monitored. They're also uh, selected by CD34 positive beads and CD234 positive beads. The latter are, are, is an erythroid marker for RNA-seq and uh, ultimately RNA uh, erythroid differentiation to, um, to look at the, both the hemoglobin and RNA-seq for gene expression profiles. And then colony assays from the CD34 positive cells, again, to get at gene expression in erythroid colonies um, derived from these mouse marrows. So the results of the correction are shown. Uh, each dot represents a mouse. Four co cohorts of xenografted mice are, are shown. And the average correction from sickle to wild type at HBB is 23.4%. So, so meets that 20% uh, threshold or benchmark that we hope to achieve, but this is balanced by indels, which introduce the equivalent of a thalassemia or null allele that doesn't generate a stable hemoglobin. That occurred at 65 of the HBB alleles. So really the question is, is this uh, ratio, is this balance sufficient to elicit a clinical effect? So um, the possibility that it might be is suggested by the next slide, in which the frequency of gene-edited cells from two manufacturing lots were tabulated. So um, colonies in soft auger were picked, and several thousand colonies were picked, and then genotyped uh, according uh, to the derivative HSPC. And what's shown in blue are the, the cells that have at least a single corrected allele. Um, the green slices of the pie are uncorrected or retained sickle mutation, and then the red are indale, indale uh, homozygotes, so these would be thalassemia-type cells. And what we, what we observed is at least 40% of these cells, of these colony-forming units, have at least one corrected allele. So 40% uh, balanced by about 40% containing an indale at two alleles, and then the remainder being uncorrected. So based on the mixed chimerism da data and allotransplantation, we would predict that this level of correction having a single corrected allele, at least 40% of the cells, would be curative. And while one cannot prove this outside a clinical trial, we do get um, a glimpse of this at, in the following experiment. So it's possible to look at HDR events that extend to the sickle allele and correct it. Um, that's shown by the guide RNA in red showing a, a cleavage site above it where the strand the strand extension and DNA polymerization commences. And it's possible, and luckily this happens rarely, for that strand extension to stop after it 
reaches the PAM mutation, but before it reaches the sickle mutation. So those are the internal controls for the homology-directed repair events that we'd like to compare. So in this experiment, uh, what was done was to uh, genotype individual marrows from mice that were xenografted. And beginning in the far left panel, these are the unedited controls. And what's shown is that uh, unfractionated marrow, CD34 positive progenitors from the same marrow, or erythroid progenitors, the CD235 positive cells, all show about the same level of representation, both in the unedited controls and in those mice that had homology-directed repair that only reached the PAM mutation. So no, no difference between unselected marrow progenitors or erythroid cells. But look what happens when sickle-corrected homology-directed repair has occurred. This, this uh, occurred in 20 to 25% of the mice, as I, as I just showed, both in marrow and CD3 or positive cells. But the erythroid cells show this marked uh, enrichment, uh, representing approximately half of the alleles that were genotyped. And, and shows what we would predict, which is, a, which is an enrichment of the corrected alleles in the marrows of these xenografted mice. What's interesting, if I take you to the far right panel, these are the non-homologous end-joining events that generate uh, a thalassemia allele. These actually drop out of a representation in the erythroid series, just as one would predict. So in the clinical trial, what we uh, strongly suspect will happen is that the thalassemia alleles won't contribute erythropoiesis and will fall out in the marrow, whereas the corrected alleles will, will, will make healthy red cells that repopulate and expand in the circulation. So um, another uh, adverse event that's important to study is uh, chromosomal translocations. And in this case, we're looking at translocations between the on-target HBB gene and the principal off-target, which we, which we call OT1. So it's possible to assess for this risk by droplet digital PCR testing using the primers as shown to bridge the junction chromosomal translocation break. And um, using a, a threshold of 0.01%, um, what this figure shows is that the, the, the level of uh, translocations was at or below the level of detection. In, in one case, it did exceed the level of of uh, detection, but this occurred both in the mock and experimental pools. So these results suggest that translocations are an incidental finding unrelated to, to the gene editing in our manufacturing protocol, or they're an extremely rare occurrence, confirming the safety of, uh, of this manufacturing protocol. So uh, in summary, um, I'd like to finish with this notion of the ideal cell therapy profile. Um, it, it should protect from hemoglobinopathy-related complications, both clinical and subclinical events. Um, there should be a safety, acceptable toxicity profile in the short term and the long term. Uh, it should be accessible and available to most patients, which is a significant hurdle in the future, and safe in both uh, children and adults. And then ideally, uh, a comparative trial design would show evidence of benefit of the curative therapy compared to existing supportive uh, care treatments. We hope to have at the end of these studies more than one choice to choose from, uh, both gene addition and gene editing approaches um, that might uh, enable our patients, which are really the focus of, of the studies, how, how to um, 
how to expand curative options for them. So the patients would have a choice and, and could make that choice based on both uh, benefits and risks to them in the long term. I'd like to finish by acknowledging the funding sources uh, for this work, California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. Um, we've also had assistance through the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic for infrastructure and IND development from the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute and the Cure Sickle Cell Initiative, and then uh, philanthropic funds through the Jordan family at Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland. Thanks very much. You know, looking at the, the field of gene therapy over the last 30 years, um, I think that many of us remember well the, some of the challenges that threatened to uh, derail this therapy uh, early on, in particular, the problem of insertional mutagenesis, of causing cancer in the, in the uh, engineered stem cell population. And, and so much work has gone into uh, optimizing vectors, moving away from retro into lenti and all of that. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm interested in your perspective as to whether that problem is solved. Well, we certainly can't uh, say that it's solved yet, but it's uh, definitely um, showing signs of progress. And as you mentioned, the original problem was the gamma uh, retroviral vectors that were derived from a mouse leukemia. And at that time, the problem was that we didn't believe we would ever get enough expression in the cells. Um, and so everybody was trying their hardest to make the the vector that carried in this uh, correct copy of the gene have as much uh, expression as possible and used uh, the promoters that were um, the long-term repeats of the vector to, to drive this um, very high degree of expression. But unfortunately, those long-term repeats uh, could function bidirectionally, and they could turn on adjacent genes. And this led to having clones expand uh, beyond control if they happened to have a vector that landed next to a growth factor gene. And because the other name for a growth factor gene is an oncogene. So um, that turned out to be a very unfortunate um, an unacceptable kind of approach. The lentiviruses that we're using now don't have the same insertion uh, proclivities. They don't wind up in the same position relative to genes. Uh, but it is true that these vectors that we're putting into the cells go in into places that we can't direct. And, and so there is a certain amount of randomness involved, even though they don't um, tend to sit in the five prime end of genes, but they definitely go into open chromatin, which is the genes that are being expressed in the cells at, at uh, that particular time. And, and so I say that the risks um, are decreased and we, measure this. We have assays to look whether there's any cell transformation going on. And, and uh, these are part of the safety features of every vector now. 
so we know that they're better, but it will be years uh, before we can say that they're perfectly safe. Great. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, so, uh, Dr. Cohn, um, so you've learned so much, um, and uh, the progress is clearly uh, very impressive because it, it looks like for the first time you're able to make a case that this, you know, may be safer than the standard, you know, bone marrow transplantation, which has been kind of the elephant in the room um, for, uh, you know, uh, these therapies. Um, I'm wondering what your perspective is uh, around the potential for commercialization with these small numbers of, of patients, you know, that are going to be treated. Um, you know, do you imagine, I mean, there are even now these N of one therapies that people are talking about. Do you, do you imagine these cells would be manufactured in a factory that's owned by a company, sort of like, the CAR T cells are right now, or how do you imagine that these, you know, as we enter this next phase, things will be manufactured? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question, and I don't think it's resolved yet. Um, as you, you know, implied, it, it's, it's expensive to do things at a pharmaceutical factory to manufacture cells like this. The developmental cost to get through the early trials and show efficacy for each disease one by one is a long process. Uh, but they do work. They are safer and better therapies. And so we, you know, we have to find a way to make it work. And it'll probably be a hybrid, you know, for some of the more common disorders like thalassemia and sickle cell, it probably will be an industrial approach where there is a central company where the cells go, like the CAR T cells get manufactured and shipped back to the patients at their home site. For some of the smaller ones, it's not clear, you know, if that's economically feasible without, you know, charging huge amounts for, for the therapy. There are um, companies that make machines that can do the cell processing locally in a closed system. That might be a, a way to do some of those. Um, you know, we might need a new model where there's a hybrid between like academic GMP centers like we have at UCLA and that are many sites, yet making commercial products in those under some limited, um, you know, un under some limited means. So it's, it's not clear, but I, I think it's a real, you know, now that we're getting the therapies, how are we going to deliver them and afford them? is really a, you know, a frontier we need to work on. Great, thank you very much. Um, so I think maybe uh, the last question I wanted to pose to Dr. Walters, um, you alluded to the fact that you know, we may have a, um, you know, a surfeit of uh, options for sickle cell, wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, and um, I guess one wonders how we really are going to deliver this, especially to the sickle cell community in a way that is uh, equal access and allows um, you know people to make informed choices um, you know just be, there there isn't necessarily um, you know there are wide variations in the severity of disease and the trust that um, many in this community have in in sort of organized healthcare especially new therapies may not be the highest so how do you see this um, um, you know, being rolled out to the sickle cell community. Yeah, that's, thank you for the question. And, and, uh, and really, it's... Let me offer, because we have one more question from the audience, and it's related. The sickle cell community is now treatments that seem to be making living with the disease easier. How do you see the new treatment therapies affecting access to curative? So those are related. 
Yeah, so that's that's why I took the liberty of finishing with that slide of my definition of the ideal curative therapy. I, I said cell therapy, but it, it could be a medication as well. And so, um, you, you know, the, the simple answer is we don't really know what the answer is today. Uh, uh, those, those are daunting issues, how to ensure access to cutting edge uh, therapy, um, how to make it economical, how to keep it safe, um, how to make decisions about who gets a curative therapy and or, or who might be better for uh, a less risky supportive care therapy because perhaps their disease is milder. And that might be illustrated by improvements in how we define the, the genetic or disease or epigenetic background that's specific, that's the precision medicine of, of every individual who inherits this particular disorder. So uh, I suspect there are gonna be a lot of changes. What's really exciting though, to me, is the attention that it's finally getting and, and the funding to spur these kinds of research projects and teams of investigators working together. I mean, look at Don Cohen, whose work supports both uh, rare diseases, but his laboratory is also supporting this project. So what amazing collaborations have been established uh, around this idea that we need better therapies for sickle cell disease. So I, I don't know the answer to those, to those and other questions, but I, I'm really glad that we're tackling them. Yes, it couldn't be a more exciting time in this field. All right, I wanna thank everybody for a great session um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the uh, symposium.